This week on Thinking Biblically, I talked to a former professional football player about whether it's possible to balance excellence and authenticity. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe and share and like and review. Um, and um, also, please remember, you could always uh, put comments uh, down below or you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. I'm very happy to have this week on Thinking Biblically, Kari Yelorenko. Kari's adult life has comprised of professional football, business, and Christian ministry. He grew up in Sudbury, Ontario to Finnish immigrant parents. Attending the University of Cincinnati on a football scholarship, he was an all-conference tackle and academic All-American, as well as Business College Student of the Year. He had a 12-year pro football career beginning with the United States Football League and the Canadian Football League, including five seasons with the Ottawa Rough Riders. During his football career, Kari was a player leader with Athletes in Action, helping other players spiritually. While playing football, Kari also worked for an international accounting firm as a consultant. Then after retiring from sports, he started, started an award-winning family fund center, which he operated with his first wife, Colleen, until her passing. Kari served six years as executive director of the Ottawa Christian Leadership Center, a division of One Way Ministries. It was at that time he attended seminary and was ordained as a minister. He met and married Marquita a short time afterwards. In the summer of 2008, Kari became the National Director of Athletes in Action. Then in 2011, he transferred to Leader Impact, focusing on the spiritual development of business people in the province of Ontario. Kari and Marquita live in Ottawa and have three adult daughters and four grandchildren. Welcome to Thinking Biblically, Kari. Alan, it's great to be with you today. Let me bring this... Uh, this up for everybody to see this is kind of proof there you are and uh i had to dig to find that um i wouldn't want to stand in your way i still wouldn't want to stand in your way well alan i realized early on in life that i could knock guys over and throw things and that became the direction of my life uh, as a young man yeah, and we're, we're, we're going to want to talk about how that all came to be. But how do you think back on, on those years? Do, do you miss it? Oh, sure. Every time the uh, season starts and guys are in training camp, even though it's been 20-some years, I feel like I could just put the helmet on again and go out and play. And I find when I'm watching games on TV, I start breaking it down like I'm watching film looking at the guy who's playing my position and starting to grade him in my mind. So I'm, I'm slowly learning how to not watch a game like a game film, but it's taking a while. Now, you've worn uh, many hats, many helmets. Uh, have you ever wanted to be one of those color commentators? You know, that's a funny thing. I, it'd be a, a very difficult job, but I enjoy the game so much. I could see myself enjoying it if I did it. But... God seemed to be leading me more towards the business realm than the talking realm. So uh, it does look fun, but I'm sure it's a pretty tough job. Even just remembering all the guys' names and numbers and what schools they went to, it's, it, yeah, there's a lot of preparation. I, I, 
I think they get a lot of help, by the way. A lot of that information that we're hearing is being fed to them by a whole team of people. So um, anyway, I welcome you into the talking realm uh, today uh, here on Thinking Biblically. And uh, I, why don't we, can we go back in time and can you share with us what things led to your football career and then beyond? Yeah, Alan, that's a great question. You know, growing up to uh, Finnish immigrant parents in Sudbury, if you don't know much about Sudbury, it's a mining town, nickel and copper mines, refineries, smelters, many, many people working underground. And I just didn't see myself staying there. And Did you, feeling, in your day when you were there, uh, were people thinking of it as the moon? Yes, it was tough. And uh, because they, used to, they actually used, didn't they, they trained lunar astronauts in Sudbury because the terrain, it's gotten better, right? Sudbury has improved, but there was a time due to all the acidic stuff in the air, it did a real number on the terrain. So Sudbury became the moon. Yeah. And they tested the NASA um, uh, landing vehicles for the moon there. They thought it would be similar and it, it has improved. They've had great land reclamation projects and change the way uh, the smelter and refinery are working. So there's less acid rain coming down. And yeah, so that's been a success story, but still a lot of people working underground. Right. And uh, I heard you recently and you mentioned that Sudbury is one of those places that's a good place to come from. Yes. You can grow up there, but a lot of people weren't staying there. My friends ended up going various places across the country, going away to school, and then not seeing that it would be a good place to come back to. That seems to have changed some, and there's more stable employment, etc. But uh, at that time, it was a good place to get out of. What I know, can you describe your growing up years and, and how you got interested in football? When did you discover you can knock people over and all that? Yeah, uh, Alan, that's that's a great question. And, you know, growing up to these immigrant parents, I kind of felt like a second class citizen, like I didn't fit in. And, uh, you know, my parents were busy working and... Uh, it's interesting when, when you have that, there's a roof over your head and meals coming in, but I kind of felt like, um, kind of felt like, you know, it was a struggling and striving process just to get my father's attention and felt like, um, kind of like, like, uh, I had been a little bit, uh, not quite orphaned, but maybe abandoned you know when people are working so hard and you're on your own a lot you feel abandoned and i always felt if i could excel at sports and at school then i'd get my father's attention so to speak and you know growing up by the time i was getting towards high school years i was starting to grow and fill out and realized in track and field that i could really throw things and in football i could knock guys over and so i kind of saw football as my way out of sudbury but also my way to get this identity as a somebody instead of a nobody an immigrant's son uh and and so i really threw myself into it weightlifting and training and and that proved to be successful by the end of high school um it was clear that i had opportunities for a track and field scholarship to couple of schools in Michigan and then had this opportunity for a football scholarship to the University of Cincinnati. 
And Alan, when that happened, it kind of felt like um, my dream was coming true. I was now going to be a somebody. And and uh, so I just threw myself into it with everything that I had. And did your parent? how did your parents track with this? Were they... That's this- interesting. They... Uh, they thought it was good, you know, getting university paid for was good. But, um, you know, I don't think they really understood how essential this was to the person that I was trying to be. You know, I, I had these wounds, but I was just struggling and striving. And on the outside, it looked pretty good. But inside, I was fearful that people would discover who I really was. And so all of this struggling and striving really was to create an outward impression of somebody that I probably really was not. So when did the faith factor uh, become uh, something? You know, it, it's interesting, Alan, as uh, football went well, school went well. And like you had said from my bio, I got drafted my senior year by the Cincinnati Bengals and things looked great. I'd gone to school in the same city. It was working out and training, went to training camp and through the preseason was getting ready for the first game. And out of the blue, I get called in and I get released by the team. Now, I felt that my dreams were coming true. I was almost there making myself out to be a somebody. And then when uh, I got asked to bring my playbook in, I was shocked. And I um, really fell into that's, it. That's, that's, sorry, that's code to being released. That's code to being cut. Okay. Cut is the, the football word or being released is a nicer word. But bringing that's after so you actually played in the preseason games for the Cincinnati yeah. Bengals in the NFL, the pinnacle of professional football. And then last minute you're out. Yeah. Getting ready for the final game, getting ready to go play a Monday night football against the Washington Redskins. And I get cut out of the blue. And it just threw me into a tailspin. And uh, I, I was drinking, treating my new wife poorly. We had just been married before training camp. And she had this annoying habit, Alan. Like if I didn't keep her out really late Saturday night, she had this annoying habit of going to church Sunday morning. So while I was in training camp, she had been going back to church. And um She really had a a renewal of a childhood faith while I was in training camp. So when I was treating her bad and in the dumps and drinking, at one point, she just said to me, Kari, you've got to change your life. And being Mr. Sensitive and Mature, I snapped back at her. Why should I? And I don't know about you, but have, have you ever said something you wish you could take back? Like you wish you could grab it out of the air and pull it back? Well, that was it for me. Oh, never. Yeah, never. Well, this was one and I thought I was going to get it. You know, football's your life. You're drinking, you're depressed, you're treating me terrible. But Alan, she didn't say any of those things. What she said to me was, Kari, I just want you to accept Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven. Just like that. Yeah, I looked at her like she was from Mars. What are you talking about this Jesus stuff? You know, I uh, I just got cut from a football team and there goes our income and I'll have to go look for a job or do something else. But she was unfazed by this, Alan. She knew that something had happened and she had a security and a peace that I didn't know about. 
Now, the two, no, did the two of you have any religious, spiritual background be before this? Yeah, she had gone to church growing up as a kid, and I was what they call a regular church attender. If you're a Finnish Lutheran and you go to church every Christmas and every Easter, I was about 20 years old, so that means I went to church 40 times. So that would be regular, you know, regularly, twice a year. And that was just, what, that was obligation sort of thing, right? That's right. The Lutheran Church is the uh, state church of Finland, and so all Finnish people, you know, you do your time and do the CNE Christian, Christ, Christmas and Easter. And uh, so I thought if someone had asked me, are you a Christian? I'd say, well, yeah, of course, I'm I'm Finnish. That means I'm, I'm a Lutheran and born into it. And um, so there was some faith background there, but it it was not a living faith at all. I had no connection between knowing who Jesus Christ was and, and having any difference in the way I lived my life. There was just no connection. So when she said this, I, I was totally taken aback. But I realized, Alan, that she had also taken a risk. We had just been married, and now she was introducing faith into our marriage to a very secular guy who was totally obsessed with his career. And she had kind of rolled the dice. And I realized, my goodness, this, this means something to her or she wouldn't have taken a risk. So to placate her, I started to go to church. And the interesting thing was, you know, when I did go to church as a little kid, all the services were in Finnish and they were in high Finnish, kind of like King James English. I had no clue what they were talking about. And I went to this church with her and the, the pastor gets up and he starts talking about God loves you. And I said, my goodness, he can't love me. I know I'm a bad guy. I know what I've done in my life and the kind of life I've lived. I knew that I was not a good person. And uh, yet he said, no, God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Uh, Alan, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. Going a few Sundays in a row, I, I started to read the New Testament through. And over several weeks, I uh, actually came to the point where I, I bowed my knee and surrendered my life to God and accepted Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, in the middle of all this happening, Alan, I get signed into the USFL, this new upstart football league, and I end up on a team with Herschel Walker and Doug Flutie. And guess who the owner of the team was? Donald Trump himself. The Donald was our owner. And I never thought that that would be re relevant 25 years later. But on that team, there was a, uh, a guy from Athletes in Action who was a staff member who started to disciple me. And in the middle of all this, the Bengals called me back. The guys, the veterans that had come back off in, in injured reserve got injured again. And uh, they called me back to come and play that week. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't. I've already signed in the USFL. So you see God's hand at work. If I had stayed on that team, there never would have come the crisis that would have made me examine what was going on in my life. And so I, I get to this team and this athletes in, in action guy, Dave Bratton, starts to disciple me and I start to grow in my faith. So what is that for uh, someone you know not familiar with the lingo? What does it mean to disciple you? What was he doing to you? He was reading the Bible with me and teaching me about the things of God. 
So I had so much to catch up on. Here I am, a young 20-something guy. I'm now a professional working, and I have no clue really how to live out my faith day to day. So he would share Bible scriptures with me, and then he got me talking about what had happened. And Alan, you'd find, do we have a few minutes? I can tell you a funny story. Absolutely. He had been taking me through this discipleship process, teaching me Bible verses, teaching me how to pray, all these things. And he says, Kari, you know, it's important now that you've come to faith, that you begin to share your faith with others. And I said, okay, I I don't know. The only Bible verse I really knew was John 3.16. And I used to see that in the end zone between the goalposts. And I realized it was about God loving us so much that he gave his son that when we believe him, we have eternal life. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty important verse. Yeah. Well, that was the only verse I knew. And and in, when you're talking about seeing it in the end zone, these are people holding up uh, uh, posters Sorry. with just John 3.16 on without actually saying what. Somehow people are supposed to know what that is. And I had no clue. So I, I didn't know what those little signs between the goalposts meant, but now I knew. Okay, good. I had an idea. So he takes me to speak at the Christian Women's Club of Parsippany, New Jersey. There's 400 ladies, all with purple hair. I call it purple hair, silver haired ladies, all looking great. And I'm the guest speaker, and he's going to ask me questions about my faith. So, so this, I is your, this is your dream come true. This is what you always wanted to do with your life. Yeah, I was scared spitless, Alan. And I, I just said at one point, Dave, I don't know anything. All I know is Jesus and John 3.16. Why are you having me speak? And he said, Kari, don't worry about it. The Christian faith is not like the alphabet. You don't have to know it from A to Z or A to Z. He said, you just start with J, Jesus, and work your way out. And so he asked me some questions and I answered. And after the... Uh, the meeting, a bunch of the little old ladies came up like your grandmother would and pinched me on the cheek like this. Oh, it's great to see that the young generation has not rejected the ways of God and we're so encouraged. And I realized then that even a bonehead jock like me who comes to faith and has only been walking with God for a few weeks can be an encouragement to people like these ladies at the Christian Women's Club. I joked with Dave Bratton when he took me there. I said, these ladies have been walking with God for like 40, 50, even 60 years. What am I going to share with them? And and, uh, I I said to him, some of these ladies are so old, they might have been here on the earth when Jesus was here walking on it, kind of joking around with them. But he reassured me again, and and he was so right. You know, as we share, we see God work and um, uh, to encourage others and, and my faith was growing. The more I began to share, and Dave took me out more, speaking to uh, teen groups at churches and things like this. Yeah, I just want to, I want to jump in. There's some, maybe it's just me, but, uh, you know, I grew up loving sports, playing sports, watching sports, but um, in, in my grade, I was usually the, the smallest and the skinniest. I was the kid that was picked last or second to last. Um, and I still, I still love to play. I wasn't any good. Um, still not. And, um, but you know, but love sports, love to, love to be involved. 
And I would look at guys like you. It's kind of hard to see in our in our, our Zoom setup here, but people saw the the uh, the football card. So you're six five, and I'm not. <laughs> you're good at, at at knocking people over. I'm not. Um, I'm the I'm the guy that easily gets. You know, I could bump into somebody and I fall down. So um, I, all my life, and it's. I've carried it into my adulthood. I look at people like you and I see physical strength. I see uh, this you know, large stature. And to me, I associate security with, with bigness. And you're sharing, you're sharing with us that you were intimidated talking to these ladies and you're talking about not sure, you know, you know, what are you going to say and all the rest of it? Um, I don't think I'm alone. You know, when we look at most people, we look at professional athletes, we look at celebrities, of course, we know the horrific stories of, of, of what some of these people get into, but we do tend to believe that these people have it all together. Yeah. Now you are not only you're for yourself, but you are on the inside. Like you, you know, these people, can you unpack that a little bit more? Like what's really going on inside people? Yeah, Alan, that's that's a great observation. And just like for me, there's a poor immigrant son trying to show the world that he's not a nobody, you know, trying to be a somebody to show my dad and the world that I've made it. And there was that drivenness inside that was totally unhealthy because inside was an insecure little boy looking for his father's affirmation. And, you know, you'll find the same thing, Alan, in, in business with some of the business guys I work with in our ministry, Leader Impact. My goodness, some of the guys, deep wounding and the drivenness. You'd say, why do they work so much? Why are they never home? And it was the same with the football guys, because that's where you get strokes, where you get affirmation. You get compensated well, and the world takes notice Meanwhile, it, it's driven from totally unhealthy motivations in many cases. So when the Lord comes into your life, um, he makes this difference. Did you experience it like magic? Or is, is there, were there things that happened where you being introduced to him and connecting with him begins to make a difference in practical ways in your life? How did that work? Yeah, I'd say immediately there was certain changes. The first thing that I had was peace. I had some peace in my life. Immediately I felt God's presence as a tangible presence of peace. And then progressively over time, God began to change things like power to change. You could see that he was working in my life because drinking became a non-thing over time and cursing and running around and those things just they, they kind of fell away without even trying to work on them so to speak but interestingly enough alan what stayed and took years for me to understand was the drivenness i brought the same drivenness that i had in my football career into my walk with god so you know this great athletes in action guy is teaching me about sharing uh, my faith, memorizing Bible verses, and having a daily uh, quiet time with God every morning, read your Bible and pray. And 
So I just threw myself into the walk of faith the same way I had done with football, because somewhere inside, even though I was now a Christian and a follower of Jesus, I still felt like I need to earn the Father's approval, just like my earthly father. So I brought some of that wounding along. And Alan, it took me 10 to 12 years before I began to realize how driven I really was and how I needed to let God into those areas of my life as well. Was that also something that was gradual or was there an aha moment at some point? It was it was gradual and progressive, but it really began when my friend Larry Brune and I began to meet together. He was helping me start my business. We had gone on some trips and uh, some research trips. And I remember one in particular listening to an audio book called Why Are You So Driven? And uh, as I was listening to this, all, you know, I, I laughed till I cried listening. And I realized that, man, oh man, I've got some wounds and that's why I'm working this way and striving. And that began the journey of authenticity, of beginning to share with a few other men in a group about this stuff and began to receive some healing. And uh, that that's really where I began to see that, no, I'm a dearly loved son of God. And that was my identity, not you're a football player or a business person. And I would get that love and affirmation from God himself instead of from the rest of the world. So your struggle with, with that sounds like it goes all the way back with your parents, particularly with your dad. Um, and then like a lot of us that continues on even within your within your life of faith one of the things i would love you to speak into because i still need i still need to hear this so when you don't even have a concept of the place of a son with a loving father and you lack that connection as a as a child um how does even the concept become something to connect with, never mind the fact that God fills that? Do you know what I mean? Uh, Alan, this is huge. And part of it came from my daily Bible reading. Part of it came from books that were written by authors like Fran Japan and Pete Scazzaro and others. Part of it came from these weekend events like a, a boot camp weekend where uh, John Eldridge teaches about the love of the father and how we're his dearly loved sons and daughters. And then part of it came in our group, just processing together the things of God. And so it, it's like God used four or five different things to bring this awareness. And, and really, I think part of it is an awareness and then part of it is walking it out in the group so that you begin to really believe that it's true. So a simple Bible verse like 1 John 3, the first couple of verses just says, how great is the Father's love for you that you should be called children of God. And that is what you are. And some versions say, how great is the, the love that uh, God has lavished. He uses the word lavished in a couple of the translations. And I just thought, lavished love? Like, I, I don't even get that. Just like you're saying, I had no construct. So that's 
probably why it took time to process this. I think that's a good point. Uh, um, if you know my story, um, people familiar with thinking biblically, many have have uh, have seen it. Um, I had a wang bang boom, turning to the Lord, complete transformation, not into perfection, but a major, major transformation that happened within an hour and a half on a on a Friday afternoon, September 1976. One, if I could say, there's a downside to that. There's been an expectation that other adjustments in my life should also be wang bang boom but you're emphasizing and i you know those things happen we see them in the bible the, the lord does miracles in our lives and he does bring about drastic change he can bring it about in seconds um but generally speaking growth and development occurs over a long period of time you didn't become a football player overnight <laughs> No, it, it takes time and training. And, you know, we forget that the Apostle Paul, after um, his conversion process, three days being blind, Ananias praying for him, that, that he goes off for a time and he's beginning to communicate his faith in some way. But then Barnabas really takes him under his wing and Barnabas is kind of his sponsor and Paul began to share, but Barnabas was discipling him until Paul was eventually released. And it was kind of a 14-year process. And even in his letters to Timothy and the other church epistles, you see a progressive realization of his own sinfulness and the greatness of God. And, and so, you know, we kind of think of Paul being converted on the road to Damascus and that's it. But we forget that. No, no, it was a many, many year process, even for the most prolific author of the New Testament. And uh, we wonder then why it's taking us so long and maybe we get discouraged when we shouldn't. Yeah, so there, there you have it. For those who are wondering why is it taking so long, the answer is because it has to. Sometimes it just has to. So we need to be patient with the process. So let, let's move on to the uh, the thing that spawned me asking you to, to come on uh, this week. Uh, we were a couple of weeks ago at one of those John Eldridge events called Band of Brothers. Uh, there's 130 men uh, that gathered at a, at a camp uh, not far from Ottawa. And um, it was a wonderful time being together with all the guys. It was very powerful. Um, the, the format was watching John Eldridge teach over video. And then people like yourself would share personally some of the things they learned about some of the points that Eldridge was making. And so one of, I've, I've read John Eldridge's, Eldridge's books in the past. And one of his things is what he calls the poser. And uh, I looked it up in the dictionary. You're not going to find John Eldridge's definition in Webster's Dictionary. Because um, a, a poser is simply somebody who poses. But he's using it uh, in, in this kind of in, in way of being a pretender, uh, almost more of an imposter, somebody who's putting on something as, as a show um, instead of revealing their true self. And so um, I remember that segment of the weekend. And were you, a, was that when you were a responder? Were you responding to the whole poser thing? The, the next session on the wound, but I the could wounds, have easily done the poser too. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, when I was watching, when I was watching this and, and tracking with it, I also thought, but, but wait a second. Um, 
being authentic isn't isn't something and i'm going to be saying this properly you're going to help me unpack this that there's a time and place to put on that professional face so um you know we we want people to uh reveal their true selves to not pretend to not be hypocrites but if my brain surgeon had an argument with their spouse that morning and then they're seeing me later on that morning i don't want them bringing in you know oh man i had a rough time with my husband or a wife and i i really don't want to be here but i i need to uh, do this with you we don't we don't want to hear that we want them to leave that stuff at the door be the professional put it on um and you know and in a sense they have to they're going to fake something I don't want to see their emotions and their their personal distress all over themselves while they're trying to give me confidence to face a life you know a life threatening situation. So how does this work? And you you know so you spent those years as a professional uh, football player. It's the same sort of thing. You're not going to bring your home woes to the field, just like you shouldn't bring them to the business office. So how do we balance this? Well, let me, let's start with this. When is being inauthentic a problem? Like when we talk about the poser, why is that a problem? And when is that a problem? Yeah, Alan, I guess with those closest to you, you know, in your family and uh, with a, a few people in your small group, there has to be a safe place where you can share and it isn't that the surgeon is being inauthentic. It's just that's not the place to be sharing. You know, you want your so surgeon dialed in, just like I want my quarterback dialed in and not thinking about the argument he had with his spouse before the game. And there's a time and a place. But let's go back to this poser, Alan, because, you know, the Bible has a name for this. And another name is someone who's wearing a mask right? You see the mask, but you don't see the person behind. And, you know, the Bible talks about this. It's a hypocrite, a mask wearer, a hypocrite. So they're pretending, they're acting to be something that they really aren't. Now, yeah, my, when, And my understanding of that is that was the name for actors, the Greek word, actually, because they used to uh, they used to hold masks in front of their faces in their in their theatrical performances. And then Yeshua, Jesus challenges the religious leaders of being actors. Exactly. And that's the thing. So yes, you have a role to play, but who are you really? And this is where working it out in a small group and speaking the truth in love to your spouse about the things and even your children but what's really going on inside of you, you have to have a safe place to do that. And, and I think that's where the challenges come in, where for many of the business guys I work with, those areas have been unexamined. And how did Plato say it? An unexamined life is not worth living. And so they're driven, but they don't know why. And so they're they're being a poser, they're wearing a mask, they're an actor with the people closest to them even. And Alan, this reflects us uh, with us in our walk with God. Many people have never been honest with God and never really seen the uh, kind of the transforming effect of God's love because they've never really opened up their hearts to him in that way. When you mention 
uh, those closest to us, I would imagine that would apply to teammates and to um, administrative staff for the surgeon. So on one hand, you could have someone who is very good at that actual thing that they're doing, their their actual job. So, you know, you could throw, you could tackle, you can, you can cut, you can write. Um, and yet in one's, you know, you, you refer to drive in your case, we could begin to, we push other people away. We could pretend we're the superstar at everything we do. And we expect to be treated as the superstar by, by everyone and end up hurting the, all the people around us. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And the, the interesting thing, Alan, you, you know, you talked about people close, whether it was the assistant to the surgeon or teammates, but again, you need to be careful here with people who aren't ready to receive truth and people who aren't emotionally mature enough to deal with something. I may have a teammate for example, let's say I was having problems uh, at home and we went out for lunch and I, I talked to him about it and he wouldn't know how to process it or wasn't ready. You'd have to feel someone out so that you know that they're ready to receive this truth because, you know, there's many elements of love. Love is patient, love is kind, et cetera, et cetera. But it also said love protects. So you want to be careful not to back up the truck and dump a bunch of your stuff, your baggage on top of someone who's not ready to receive it or hear it. And this is where some counseling or having someone pray through things with you, like a prayer ministry type of situation may be very helpful where someone's trained to receive it and you begin to filter it. And so I learned over time that there are places and times where it's totally appropriate. And there's other times when I should just mind my peace and be quiet until I'm in this safe place again. Yeah, so you're, you're talking here about, you know, when people begin to get in touch with the need to be authentic, that sometimes people will go, well, now I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to tell everybody what I think all the time, you know, about your hair, about your clothes, about your this, about your breath, about, right? Because it, it's similar uh, to people who, um, who, never had boundaries in their lives and uh, they they've seen themselves as manipulated by other people they, it becomes this big realization and instead of building boundaries they erect these walls and they start you know almost hitting other people in the face with their new found walls and so there is a tendency that when we begin to grapple with uh weaknesses in our lives that we're trying to improve that we can go overboard but then how about um when we talk about something like authenticity and yourself being a pro football player for 12 years, I imagine you saw a lot of posing um, because partly you're getting, you know, you're getting paid to perform as an, as an athlete. Did you ever encounter fear that if people would let their guard down, they would begin to be less of an athlete? Do you ever find oh, that? I, and, oh, you know, you're asking me to be soft and that yeah. that's no good. Yeah, I think there's two things here. One of them is you in my professional career, guys would never, ever speak that way about any issues or fears, even though it was all there. It was all bravado and everything's fine and I'm OK. In fact, I'm great. 
And uh, so, so this kind of sharing would never be there. You'd never show that there was any chink in the armor. And interestingly enough, I only met a few players who really were so secure that they could help other players. They could talk about their stuff. You know, I think of players like uh, Mike Singletary, who was a well-known Christian linebacker for the Chicago Bears. He was a team leader, fantastic player. And he had grown up in the faith and had been well-mentored on how to live out your faith as a man of faith in the football realm. And he was very secure. And I'd met him at a conference and I I realized that I was not yet at that point. And by the end of my career, I was actually enjoying it, enjoying the process of the film watching and the banter with the guys without fear of being released from the team or being cut and just being able to pour into others. But it took me many years to get to that point. So going back to this, the posing and the chest pounding was a central part of all of that for many years. And uh, a few guys got through it. And that's encouraging, but a little discouraging that it takes so long. So it sounds like uh, one of the things that you're saying is that, and you did allude to this, that one of the things that really made the difference is when your identity became secure, that you weren't, it wasn't so much about being the star player that was an important thing. That was what you were called to do at the time, but you didn't have to prove yourself as a human being through your football anymore. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more, how that, that dynamic? Yeah, Alan, this is so huge. And I, I think of Jesus himself. You know, the Bible talks about Matthew 3, where he's about in the in the process of being baptized by John the Baptist and this voice from heaven says here is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and he hadn't done anything yet and the Holy Spirit appears it's a beautiful scene and then Jesus goes out and is tempted in the desert but the father gave Jesus this affirmation of his identity and who he was even before he started his ministry or before he had healed anyone or gone to the cross. This was all done before so that he was secure in who he was. And so when we begin to grow in our in our realization that we are sons and daughters of God, the scriptures tell us that then we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of adoption or sonship. And by him, we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy. And it, it's so different than having a, a fear of, of man or a fear of the world, you know, that they're going to see us in a certain situation or we won't get the accolades that we want. Um, instead, getting that love and acceptance from our Heavenly Father through Jesus, all of a sudden you realize whether I play well today or don't play well today, I'm still the loved son or daughter of God. And that provides peace, more peace and assurance to go ahead. And so it comes down to having the right kind of focus through which everything else finds its balance. And um, you know, most of us don't learn that 
um, uh, we're, you know, I did I did a sermon series some time ago. I call it the recalibration series. The the need to recalibrate because we get knocked off kilter, and we come into the world not calibrated. We're not calibrated properly, uh-huh. and uh, and that and that gets fueled through all of our experiences, like what you were sharing growing up, um, and uh, and then even when we begin to understand the truth about God and us and who Jesus is and what that means to us, we still, it takes time to, for that to, the, to be properly calibrated to him so that we're not finding our, de- our identity in the things that we do and we're not trying to prove ourselves all the time, but rather we could find that rest. You know, you mentioned um, when, you, when you first came to the Lord, the very first thing that happened to you was, was peace. And as you know, in Hebrew, the word peace is shalom, and, and, and it means everything in its right place. And while we won't experience full shalom until the Lord returns, that you had a foretaste of things becoming, you know, falling into their, their right place. And, and then he's been doing a beautiful job in and through you since then. Alan, isn't it true when you think of Hebrews 4, You think of Hebrews 4 where it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath shalom for the people of God. Make every effort to enter that rest. I didn't understand that. I was making every effort not to get rest, but to get accolades of men. And I realized as I pursued God, as I trusted in him and really believed his promises to me, I was making an effort to enter his rest. And and that, that's different than struggling and striving to get ahead in this world. It's It's making an effort to really draw near to him. And, you know, Hebrews 11, 6 says, the, ro- the, the Lord rewards those who earnestly seek him. So as I sought him more and his face in being still, believing what he said, receiving his truths, I had this inner shalom that, that kept away the struggling and striving. I had some peace just when I came faith, but I didn't have peace in my heart in who I was until I was able to appropriate the love of our Heavenly Father. And then that's what that's where the shalom started to come from. Remember when you said earlier that you you went from being driven as a football player, then you were kind of driven like with Bible reading and Bible study, all that, all that. And now you're talking about another kind of drivenness. I think some translations even say strive to enter that rest, which yeah. makes no sense, right? Yeah. So how is that different from the drive you were talking about earlier? It, it, yeah, that's a great point, Alan, because you can go tick the boxes off and treat, okay, I had the, I read my Bible this morning, I prayed for the war in the Ukraine and my family, and I memorized the new Bible verse, so you tick the boxes off, and you can do that without pursuing the heart of God. And it's like you can buy your wife, Alan, you can go out and buy your wife roses and write her a little note, but never listen to her. Never sit down and say, how are you doing today, dear? Tell me what's going on in your day. And you're now pursuing her heart, not just doing things for her. 
And, and so I was good at doing things for God, but I had no idea how to pursue his heart, how to be still and reflect and listen to him. And when I read a scripture, just pause there and say, Lord, what are you saying to me about this? What do I need to receive? And let the Holy Spirit minister to me. It was all about activity over here before. It wasn't about that rest in him. So I pursue him by being in his presence, by listening to his voice, etc. Yeah, that that's that's good. Like I and I'm hearing in this effort, because it's not we're not talking about passivity in, in, in any way here. We are talking about being active, but um there's an act activity that could seem to be God focused that's really self-focused, which is very tricky because it could appear that it's all about God, all about good things, doing the right things, when it's really self-driven. And the other one is is a giving of oneself over to him and letting him call the shots. Um, I imagine there could be some illustrations with uh, uh, listening to coaches and, 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 and that sort of thing, because um, in, in many things that we do, it's so easy to take everything into our own hands and go for it, as opposed to being aware uh, to what you know, the leader, the coach, God, their vantage point. That's such a better vantage point of life. And if we would only listen to them, then we could we got play in the field a lot better. Well, Alan, this is so huge because it's so easy to rest on your training, your skills, your experience. And football is a great example. I could go out and play a game. I've watched the film. I played this guy before. I know how to do this. I've done the footwork and not listen to the coach. So I, I think it has great application to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This one of the most famous Old Testament verses, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, skills, background, accolades, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So I wasn't really trusting in him or letting him direct my paths. I was kind of a self-directed kind of guy for many years until I learned how to really trust in him and rely on him to lead me by his Holy Spirit. Yeah, we had uh, that those verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, as a plaque in our little dining room when we were first married. And uh, a relative of ours who didn't believe in God uh, took that to mean uh, that we were not going to think for ourselves. This kind of idea, like, so give ourselves over to our religion, so to speak, that we're just going to be this, like, religious automatons. But that's not what it means at all. It's it's far more like we've been talking about by having, recognizing that the coach knows better, but the, the coach the coach isn't running the field. The coach isn't doing the tackle. Like, there's, and um, there's all this skill involved. There's all this engagement involved. But at the same time, we're not doing our own thing. Do you have a, you wouldn't have yeah. a story, but <laughs> you could say, yeah. no, this is not prepared in your younger years. Did you ever have a time where you just, we went against what the coach was saying because you thought you knew better? Yeah, I had a really great coach at um, the New Jersey Generals. His name was Bill Austin. And he was this little old guy. I don't know how old he was, but he looked to me to be about a hundred. Now, of course I was 22. I don't know really how old he was. 
And I kind of thought, what does this old geezer have to teach to me, this young strapping guy who kind of knows everything or thought I knew everything? And he began, as we watched the film, he began to instruct us in the way to move our feet. And he showed me some things in pass protection that I had never seen before. Simple things about how to use your hands like this. And when the guy's approaching you, and I, I realized all of a sudden I'd really been taking this guy too lightly. And uh, I began to listen. I, I didn't want to listen to him for a while. And I really wasn't listening very much. But then I began to see that what he was sharing was amazing. I found out later that he was the offensive line coach for Lombardi at the Green Bay Packers, who was the great all-time Hall of Fame football coach. They won all these Super Bowls. And then he was the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers for several years. And here he was eminently qualified, unbelievable. And I totally discounted him because he looked like a little old guy who didn't know what he was doing. But yet he had the wisdom of Yoda, so to speak. And I began to realize and I began to listen to him. And he helped me immensely. And he probably added five years to my football career with the things that he taught me. And so I think there's the, the best example I had uh, of not wanting to listen and then realized I need to listen to this guy. It's the same way with God. You know, he's got the wisdom of eternal creation, all knowing everywhere at once, all powerful. Why was I not listening to him? And again, you know, and for a lot of, especially when we were younger, even with God, like we thought, you know, somebody, gave us a bunch of instructions to follow and it's like i'm good i've got this and we go um and rather than that ongoing uh relationship you know the bible talks about walking with god that that we need to do which is a walking that has to do with with listening and talking and working things through and being reliant on him uh, at the same time we being the ones doing the things that we need to do but doing it according to how he, he is calling us to do them and it and uh, and it does take time to learn these lessons. Yeah. You know, Alan, it's interesting because even walking with God, we know that as we read the New Testament, Jesus was continually listening and doing what the Father said. And then he said to us in John 15, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And this idea of abiding or remaining in him and being connected to him and receiving the, the sort of juice of the vine through the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it's an amazing concept that was totally lost on me because I thought coming to faith in Jesus was an event. I didn't think it was a process and a lifestyle, a marathon. I thought it was like a 10-yard sprint. Poof, okay, now I'm good for eternity never realizing it was a lifelong relationship of walking with God. One in which he is so patient with us and, uh, and thank him for that. And I want to thank you for, for doing this with me today. This has been wonderful. If people want to follow up with you, is there any way that they can contact you? Sure. Easy at Kari uh, Y at leaderimpact.com by email is the best way. And uh, I also have a little blog where I do a four-minute uh, encouragement for our Leader Impact leaders on Monday mornings. It's a four-minute little piece from Scripture. And uh, 
that can be found at multiplyme.net. That's fantastic. I'll put both of those. I'll put your email and that website in the description. So again, thank you so much for doing this with me today. Oh, thanks, Alan, and uh, shalom to you. Thank you. Well, as I said, if you want to contact Kari, you could do so at his email address, and that'll be in the description, as well as uh, his blog that he mentioned. I'll put the link in there as well. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can do so at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Mm -hmm.